The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1981, an Indian-British man was making his bones at the advertising agency Ogilvy & Mather, coming up with slogans like, Naughty but nice, applied to some cream cakes, and That'll do nicely, which helped American Express sell their services. He invented the word irresistible. Oh, and he also wrote a book called Midnight's Children, which became a bestseller and launched a literary career. Within a decade, Salman Rushdie had become perhaps the most famous writer in the world, thanks in part to his novels and especially to his book The Satanic Verses and the subsequent fatwa against him. A fatwa, a religious decree issued by the Ayatollah, condemning Rushdie to death and forcing him into hiding. But let's return to Midnight's Children. It's a marvelous book, a magical book, describing the lives of children born at the dawn of Indian independence. Fast forward 40-plus years, or a couple of generations worth of writers and readers later, Midnight's Children is now farther away from the present than Indian independence was to Rushdie when writing his book. Rushdie has become part of history, in fact, and Midnight's Children, as an innovative and tremendously successful novel, has become part of both the literary and historical landscape. And yet, obviously, it's not the only version of the story to tell. History belongs to everyone, and it's always changing. Rushdie, in 1981, couldn't have known how the events of 1947 would affect the generations who came after him. For that, we look to new generations of writers to make sense of what they know and what they can imagine. We'll talk to one such writer today, the novelist Shilpi Suneja, born in India and now living in the United States, who both admires Rushdie's work and has forged a path of her own. We'll talk about her take on Indian independence and its aftermath today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here, etc., etc. Is that too flip? Well, was it too flip when Lord Byron said, Hail Muse, etc.? Sometimes it's best to be economical. Speaking of which, let's take a look at Emily Dickinson. Last time we saw her being very economical. She's always pretty economical, isn't she? Short lines and not too many of them. Does a lot with the dash and the exclamation mark and italics. She'll say the wounded deer with an italic, with an italicized wounded. The wounded deer. Not the wounded deer. The wounded deer and get her point across that way. She's not describing a particular deer, a deer that she saw. I woke up one morning and saw a wounded deer limping, trembling across the frozen grass, not like Keats's rabbit. This is an argument that she's making. The wounded deer, an analogy that she's drawing about a wounded deer. So she italicizes wounded. The wounded deer, like the morning sun or the grateful boy. We're going to hear about these things in the abstract. And we don't even need words to tell us that. Just slanting one word does the job. So, today we move from poem 181 to 187. Emily is imagining a procession of martyrs. 
ascending into heaven. And in my reading of this one, three stanzas, four lines each, another tight poem without many words, but packed with, with vivid meaning and ideas. In my reading of this one, I see Emily almost baffled. How can you be so sure of yourselves? What she seems to be saying, or maybe better, better, better way to put it is, what is it like to have so much certainty? Emily imagined herself falling into an abyss, one suspects, or maybe shooting into the heavens at breakneck speed, ascending herky-jerky with laborious efforts and wayward limbs on wayward paths. Or, as we'll see, trudging forward, trudging up the ladder to heaven. That's that's kind of my reading of, of how she's seeing herself and her own life and her own inner state based on a single word, which for me changes the meaning of the poem. So let's take a look. 187. Through the straight pass of suffering, the martyrs even trod, their feet upon temptation, their faces upon God. Okay, well, that's easy enough. The straight pass here is like Thermopylae, stuck between, you say Thermopylae? Thermopylae. Stuck between two cliff sides or two mountains, maybe. And these martyrs, soldiers, you can imagine them, those who have died for a holy cause, can even trod or march in a neat and precise way. The path of suffering for them is straight. There are no obstacles. They defeat temptation. Defeat, you can spell that D-E-F-E-E-T if you want to be clever. Their feet are trotting upon temptation. The important thing is that they're looking up their faces to God. That's all the direction they need. That's how they move straight through a straight pass of suffering. Second stanza. A stately, shriven company. Shriven here means absolved of guilt. A stately, shriven company. Convulsion playing round, harmless as streaks of meteor upon a planet's bond. Okay, Emily is so impressed by this image of martyrs ascending into heaven on this straight path that she reaches for some space metaphors. A planet is in orbit. It has a bond, right? That's what holds it. Gravity, the bond of gravity. It always moves the way it moves. Powerfully, but tight. Unwavering, unflinching. So tight is this bond that meteors go racing through the sky and the planet does not flinch, does not waver, does not even bother to notice. It has its direction to go in because it is connected, it's bonded to some other large mass. You can't startle it out of its path. It doesn't pause and watch the meteors. It doesn't wait for them to go by before resuming on its journey. Out of, doesn't wait out of concerns for safety or because it's excited or anything else. Martyrs on their way to see God are like this, moving forward inevitably like a planet held to its course. Temptation? What? Us? Who cares? We, we trod upon it. Suffering? What? Who cares? Does not bother us. 
not <laughs> does not bother us martyrs. Convulsions like those that might affect the rest of us are all around. Sins and anger and regrets and jealousy. How many of you think you're going to heaven? And how many of you think that on the way to heaven, you'll still be thinking about some stuff here on earth? On your way, you'll be thinking about the the girlfriend who dumped you or the the dumb boss who fired you or the way your your cousin stole money from your grandparents. You'll be angry at the neighbor who cut down a tree that you liked, that he claimed was on his property. Oh, you, or, or you'll be wishing for sin. One more crack at it, right? One, one, one for the road, one more affair, one more trip to Vegas, one more lost weekend, one more this, one more that. Yes, God, can't wait to meet that guy, but it's a long road. We're not all saints. We're still only human. Convulsion, convulsion, convulsion. Emily says the martyrs are free from that. That's not how they move. Third stanza. Their faith, the everlasting troth, troth here is faith or loyalty or truth. Their faith, the everlasting troth, their expectation, fair, such an astonishing line. Let me stop there. Their expectation dash fair dash. What's in their minds? She kind of gives it away that she thinks it's almost nothing. Fair enough. Or fairs in fair weather. Decent, calm, placid. Not real high, not real low. Convulsions. Reduced down to zero. Those meteors can streak by all they want. Others might be giddy with excitement, but that way lies disappointment, ultimately. Others may be terrified, but martyrs wouldn't be because their faces are upon God and because they are certain. Their faith, the everlasting troth, their expectation, fair. The needle to the north degree, Wades so through polar air. There we go. We're discussing planets, so why not stick with planets? The magic of magnetism, the mystery of a compass. Mysterious be- mis- Compasses are mysterious because they work somehow. No batteries in there. <laughs> and, yet, and yet they do what you want them to do with 100% fidelity in a mysterious way. They're the opposite of mysterious, too. It's kind of like martyrs. There's no mystery to where the martyrs are going. It's a straight path. Nothing bends them from it. They trot evenly, despite temptation and suffering. There's an inevitability to it, but what's in their mind is a mystery, just like it's pretty mysterious that a needle on a compass always points north, even if it's so routine that we expect it. It's also mysterious that a planet stays on its orbit. Why doesn't it just fly away? Why does it go in a a circle? Not quite a circle, but you know what I mean? We expect it to do what it does. We can come up with the reason why, but the scientific explanation only scratches the surface. Gravity makes it travel on this path, we know. But why gravity? How does that work? Why a planet at all? 
Where do these forces come from and what do they mean? And already we're convulsing in a way that martyrs do not. And this is the key word for me. Wades so through polar air. The needle to the north degree wades so through polar air. If we travel to the North Pole, if we travel to the North Pole, it's a slog, right? That would be a terrifying, taxing mission for most of us. We'd, we'd be on snowshoes if we're lucky. But even with those, we would be wading through polar snow and ice. That's what contemplating heaven feels like, too. How do we get there with, with all those temptations below and suffering on our sides painfully, laboriously, step by step, maybe stopping to rest or weep or howl in frustration and despair, giving in to temptation. We wade. What's waiting like for the martyrs? It's not waiting, it's frictionless. It's as clean as the needle of a compass pointing north. Still clean, still pure. Nothing messy or difficult about the way that needle points through the polar air. And Emily isn't admiring it. She's not aspiring to that. She's marveling at it. Look at what it's like for them, those martyrs. What must that feel like? It reminds me of Saul Bellow saying he didn't go to therapy because he was from the Midwest and we take our lumps. Well, some of us can make the lumps go away through faith and belief. Some of us know the lumps are ours to take, and the path to the North Pole is arduous and treacherous and full of uncertainty, and yet that's ours to take, too. And we can only look at those martyrs and wonder, what would that be like to be moving like that, to ascend like that, so full of that? single-mindedness of purpose. Well, Emily doesn't explain what it's like, but she gets at what it's like to wonder what it's like. And that is poem 187. Shilpi Suneja is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Shilpi Suneja, who was born in India and lives now in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She holds an MA in English from NYU and an MFA in Creative Writing from Boston University, where she was awarded the Saul Bellow Prize. She's here today to discuss her novel House of Caravans and the Salman Rushdie classic Midnight's Children. Shilpi Suneja, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've talked about Midnight's Children many times in my life and a little bit here on the podcast, but I've never talked about it with anyone who was born in India, I don't think. So I'm excited about that to hear your perspective. My first question is, where were you in life when you first read Midnight's Children? So actually, I was in my 20s, in mm-hmm. my early 20s, and that was a while ago. <laughs> um, I was studying computer science. And it was a degree I didn't really want to use because my first love was literature. I'd taken a handful of lit courses in college, but nothing like, you know, South Asian literature. So I just basically stumbled upon Rushdie's works at Barnes & Noble. I used to spend a lot of time and money at BNN. I also discovered Proust there. So Mm, Right. Which one came first? Um, I... I don't remember now. (laughs) I think it might have been Rushdie. Yeah, this was when we were living in North Carolina. Right, right. Okay, so you were in your 20s living in North Carolina. How long had you been living in the States at that point? Probably six or seven years. So I was still very much fresh off the boat. And at that time, this was just before Facebook. So there was such a thing as culture shock in between traveling between the two Mm. countries. Right. And had you heard of Salman Rushdie before, or did you just stumble upon him in the bookstore? I had not actually heard about him. At the time, I was still developing my reading palette, my taste for literature, and I'm quite proud of myself for realizing that I loved him, and I didn't know that he's actually beloved in the whole world. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so... I mean, should we be surprised by that, that you didn't hear about him in India? Or was it, were you not in a a kind of environment where people were talking about books and authors and and so on? Or was he not being discussed that much when you were living in India? So a little bit of both. And I guess this speaks to, you know, all these cultural forces that were just in the midst of. First of all, you know, back then, not as many diverse courses on literature Mm. were being offered Mm -hmm. U.S. That's changed significantly since then, I think. And also, yeah, just reading and curriculum in India is very much a product of colonial education. And, you know, we weren't taught about partition. We weren't taught about a lot of things. Just kind of like here in the U.S., people have been complaining we weren't really taught about slavery. We weren't really taught about mm-hmm. land was taken over from the indigenous Native Americans, you know. So all these things, they're just part of our cultural milieu and we just sort of accept it until 
we go to a bookstore and we have our own money to spend finally. And we realize that, you know, there's a whole world out there that's been kind of hidden from us. Yeah, right. So when you were in India, you'd be more likely to uh, hear about, I'm guessing, Charles Dickens or or Victorian writers. Yeah. Instead of uh, someone who was kind of contemporary and and important. Um, Okay. So you stumble across Salman Rushdie in the bookstore. And what drew you to the book? Was it the cover? Were you looking at the description of it? Or how did you set your expectations for what you were going to find in there? Yeah, that's a great question, Jack. Um, so not so much the cover. <laughs> <laughs> but my children, I mean, we could have a debate about it, but I don't think it's, to me, it's not such an evocative sort of title. It's not poetic. And that's the kind of title that speaks to me. But it was basically just the writing. And that by then I had, you know, obviously read a lot of Dickens, some Jane Austen. So I had developed a kind of a reading palette. And the way that he writes, his opening just sort of sucks you in. It's a very new He's using the English language. So all of those things and the storytelling just pulled me in. So he's a master at so many things and voice and narration are definitely one of them. Right. Were you looking at it as a return to home, so to speak, or you know, did it did it intrigue you that it was set in India and about India's recent history? Or, I mean, sometimes people who once they leave a country, they're they're in a a mindset or a frame of mind where they they want to get back there, and sometimes they they want to move on. Um, you know, what was your attitude toward India when you started reading Midnight's Children? Yeah, another great question. Thank you for this. So I think Midnight Children was the first India book, big India book that I'd read. Mm-hmm. And it felt strange and familiar at the same time. Familiar because I was aware of the history that he was covering, independence, Gandhi's death, and all these other little events that he covers. But it also felt strange because he was writing about India in English and a new kind of English. Yeah. So I may, I'll just read a very small sentence. My father now said, fate, said a fateful thing. Why? He intoned bravely, while Jamila and I shook with fear. Begum Sahiba, this country is finished, bankrupt, fantouche. Um, so that's a small little quote from his massive novel. Yeah. This kind of writing is just so much, so very much Russian because Characters are addressing themselves in, in, you know, in an Indian way. Begum Sahiba, for example. There's a lilt, um, there's a poetry and rhythm in the sentences, but there's also these Indian words thrown in there. What is fantush? So that kind of what we now know as Hobson Jobson, that's what he's so famous for. And that kind of opened up India and writing and the idea of a novel to me at that time in a very interesting way. Like this was my thesis because uh, what does it mean to reveal and to translate Indian lives, Indian problems, Indian ways of being in the world into English and how to make a novel out of it? So it all felt very, very new. So even though I was missing India at the time uh, and I recognized a lot of the events that he was mentioning, the fact that it was written in this new, weird kind of English was a very unsettling experience. So it didn't 
necessarily restore India to me because I was missing it. It actually made me think of India in a very new and a very fresh way. Um, oh, right. So yeah, so right, translating it into English is a very bold, is a very interesting step that these early writers took. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the author that that reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Saul Bellow. I know you've won the Saul Bellow Prize. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, writers who, especially Jewish American writers, when they would, they talk about Augie March in that way. And it, mm-hmm. if you read Saul Bellow's first two novels, they're not really written like that. They're well written, but there's a, a kind of stiffness and Augie March is where he kind of found his voice. And you hear people talk about that as this revelation of, here's how you can import the the influence of Yiddish and the kind of cadence, and it's sort of new and fresh, and it's a way of, it, it's where the style of the English being used almost becomes uh, synonymous with a way of looking at the world. And exactly. It, yeah, it mm-hmm. sounds like that's... Um, that's what jumped out at you. You found the right book. I mean, <laughs> so were you already writing fiction when you read it, or were you thinking about becoming a writer? Uh, at that time, it was a bit too early for me to even think about writing mm-hmm. and writing. So I was just a, a reader. <laughs> yeah, right. And But you were a computer science. At that point, were you out of college, working already, or, um, but you were, the idea that you would become a writer was still, um, like you hadn't planned to go to an MFA program or anything like that? Yeah, that came several years later. But yeah, at the time I was, I think I was looking for a job. I just graduated and I was very much in the, you know, tech field. That was going to be my life, sort of dry and coding. (laughs) Yeah. So that was a completely different part of my life that I won't even recognize anymore. (laughs) A lot of people, though, probably are in a life like that, and they maybe have a love for for Rushdie or another writer or poetry or something, and they sort of think, well, that will be what I do on the weekends, or that that will be my evenings. I'll I'll work all day, and I'll I'll earn my paycheck, and I'll do this thing that I can do, which you know will earn me a salary, and then I will, in my spare time, devote myself to sort of the enjoyment of Rushdie. But it sounds like you were in a little too deep um, to sort of have that be the path of your life. Exactly, yeah. So I could not, I guess I've always been a rebel. I pursued computer science and jobs such as that for a while. And then once the novel that I just finished just sort of hit me, it it hit me like a ton of bricks. I could not hold down a full-time job once the writing, once I was really into the writing. And it wasn't going to be sufficient to just write on the weekends. Right. Okay, so you have also written a sweeping novel set in the aftermath of Indian independence. Uh, but mm-hmm. of course, Rushdie was writing his book in 1981, and you're, I mean, the, the differences are, are very clear. You're, you're in America, not London. You're, uh, you know, writing from a different vantage point, a different perspective. But I'm wondering what you share with Rushdie as an observer of history, and, and where do you see the differences as being the most pronounced? 
So it's amazing to even think about comparing myself to Rusty, but just as a <laughs> as a friend of his, perhaps. So from Rusty, I've attempted to learn to covet a breathless sweep of history. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a scholar and he's inherited so many literary traditions, such as the Arabic storytelling tradition of the Kissa, right. 1000 Nights, even the Indic epics, such as the Mahabharat. And then he's also so well-versed in pop culture. Mm-hmm. I think of him as the literary equivalent of Monty Python, who, by the way, he studied alongside in England, I think. Yeah, right. But yeah, and also, by the way, I love the phrase, an observer of history. So yeah, so I attempted in my novel to observe history like Rushdie, but unlike him, I've taken one big event, which is the partition, and I've attempted to tell as many stories that have radiated and flowed from that one wound. I'm not as playful as Rushdie, not with language, at least. But yeah, so in my in one of my early drafts of the novel, I tried, I attempted with some playfulness with characterization, but that just kept getting in the way of the seriousness and heftiness of the subject matter. Just as an example, we both write about Jallianwala tragedy in our novels when an English general opened fire on a group of men, women, and children who were gathered peacefully. So Rushdie's description is excellent, of course, but he sort of playfully suggests that one of the main characters, Adam Aziz, the narrator's grandfather, is saved from the bullets because he has a very loud sneeze. So he sneezes and he ducks and therefore he's saved from the bullets. But in my version, I don't get as playful as that. The same tragedy in my novel compels one of the main characters to try and assassinate the, the perpetrator of the tragedy. So I don't play with history like Rashi does. Mm-hmm. Perhaps because I feel that characters and my family perhaps in particular got played by history. But I definitely admire the grand sweep that he so often dips into and portrays and splashes on the page with such ease. Right. It would be interesting to imagine if he were writing in 2021 instead of 1981, uh, how it might have changed him. I mean, even if he were writing about the same historical time period, so much history has passed. Uh, You know, we've had more globalization and we've had Mm -hmm. 9-11 and there's just been a lot of world events that might have affected how he looked back at that time period. Exactly, yeah, and I am not too well prepared to speak of his oeuvre because he has set novels in the in the U.S., but yeah, I think his outlook has probably definitely shifted, and definitely after the whole fatwa um, incident. Right, and, right, yeah, we haven't even mentioned that. It's amazing that yeah. we've gone this far, and, and uh, that hasn't even come up, but um, obviously that's been hugely important. That's one of the events that <laughs> that I should have listed. Yeah, I know. Again, so like his life is, is so interesting, and um, you know, he's already written a book about those years of living in the shadows, and then with the recent attack that actually did manifest, and how he survived that. So, 
Yeah. And that right. one has lived and then some. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess when I say I should have mentioned it as an event, I, I mean not just that it would have impacted him and his life and how his perspective, but that it would have changed how anyone would look at uh, you know, Indian independence and, and just kind of the themes that he was looking at. The fatwa was like it, it was a, a world historical event. Yes. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with Shilpi Suneja, and we'll ask more about her novel, House of Caravans. Okay, we're back. So, Shilpi, tell us about House of Caravans. What is the book about? Okay, so the novel is about the partition of India, and the main characters are two brothers, Chote Nanu, Bade Nanu, which, again, translates to uh, older grandfather, younger grandfather, and signals that the story is being told by one of their grandsons. Hmm. At the start of the novel, the two brothers are... One of them is attempting to assassinate the superintendent of police that has caused a lot of mayhem and is an agent of colonization. Um, But he's also at the same time fallen in love with the woman that the superintendent is seeing in the red light district. Hmm. And the consequence of this conflict basically is that Shodinanu ends up in jail and then his brother, Bare Nanu, has to figure out a way to get him out or to at least see him in jail. Um, and that's the bulk of the, the 1940s timeline. There's a second timeline that alternates. And that one is set in 2002. And it's the story of Bare Nanu's grandchildren who have come back and gathered in his house in Kanpur, India. And that story concerns them learning more about their fathers and their mother has not told them much about their fathers in the past 20 years. Mm. Right. Okay. Actually, I was wondering if you might read the first page so that we can get a a feel for how this story starts to unfold. We'll do so. So this is Prologue, August 1947. Two days after the birth of the nation, Chotinanu races towards the Lahore Amritsar Lahore Express. But before he can shove his way inside, the cargo staring back from the benches stops him dead in, in his tracks. He won't be taking the train to free India. For once, he is glad for his lateness. Not glad, no. For the most part, Chotinanu is numb. But in a small chamber of his heart, he is pleading with a fate that has spared him once to spare him one more time. He brackets the golden-haired boy against his body, covers the boy's eyes, but it's too late. They have both seen a sight they will never forget. Mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, grandparents and children, especially the children, even the ones in the world, all undone. No one stirs, no one is left alive. The train is no longer a train, but a tidal wave of blood. In Punjab, the land of five rivers, a sixth is born. The boy's 
green blue green eyes demand an answer but chodanani has no words to speak his throat closed as though over a chicken bone the boy's skin burns with fever his body shivers like a telegraph needle poised on a bat on a piece of bad news my little boy chodanani buries the child's nose in his neck a crooked trapper all knees and sprightly on most occasions the boy feels like dead weight his bones dense with fear Chodinanu feels he could crumble under the weight of a child. His own short legs, bulked from jail labor, won't stop wobbling. I'll stop there. Mm. So you talked about this a little bit, but maybe we can unpack it a little more. So this is in Lahore, which is uh, British India, 1943. And the war is going on, World War, obviously World War II. And there's this resentment of colonial rule that's growing in India, and, and it's accompanying that are acts of rebellion, and Chote Nanu is part of that. That's sort of the background for, for what he's doing. Is he, I don't want to spoil the book, but when he's planting this bomb that's uh, intended for the British superintendent of police, that's uh, part of an effort to uh, gain an independent India, I guess, but it sounds like he might also have some personal reasons for wanting to do this. Yeah, so personal being that, you know, he knows of people who were harmed, who were killed, and political, obviously, because, well, you know, the leaders sort of who he's working with, they have this vision that it's not just personal, it's political, it's larger than us, it'll achieve independence for the whole nation. So that kind of, you know, political consciousness was very much in the air by the 1940s. It had been in the works for a long time. I mean, as early as 1857, which some historians call the first war of independence, when the sepoys, which are the native soldiers in the British army, they uh, rebelled against their higher officers. But in the 40s, by that time, you know, Gandhi's already on the scene and Quit India movement has already been launched in the 20s. So that air of wanting independence, throwing off the yoke of colonialism is very much part of the political culture at the time. Right. And then he's imprisoned, uh, I guess, for four years. He gets out. And then where we see him, I think, at the opening is he's getting ready to leave Lahore as Lahore is descending into violence. Yeah. Mm. And he's carrying a boy. You mentioned the eye color. Uh, is there anything we could say about that? Or is that us? We should let readers find out as they're going through the book. Yeah, I can share a little bit because there are so many stories in here. So giving a few details, hopefully, you know, entices the reader. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So Henry, that that's the name of the little boy. Henry is, in fact, not Chodinanu's biological child. Henry belongs to the superintendent, actually, mm. He's the superintendent's son, and also the son of Nigarjan, the woman that both Chodinanu and the superintendent loved. The boy has been orphaned because of the partition violence. Different people face the violence for different reasons, and that the nuances of that are covered in the novel. But yeah, so he's basically taking this child because the boy has been orphaned and he has almost no one else except Chodinan. So he is carrying a boy that is the son of 
a woman that Chode Nanu was in love with and a father that uh, Chode Nanu had attempted to murder. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Good start. <laughs> As I'm speaking from a, a plot perspective, that gives us yeah. uh, a lot to look forward to in the book. So the two of them, I guess, uh, and then he, he encounters his brother. So what kind of relationship do Chode and, and Bare have? So their sibling relationship, at times, you know, Bare Nanu was protective, but mostly... Barinanu appears to have been absent just because Chodrenanu was in jail for so long. Mm-hmm. And because he's a political prisoner, you know, he wasn't just caught for petty theft. He was caught for high treason. He's not one of those, you know, you know, we're going to treat him lightly sort of prisoners. He was, he was given one of the worst treatments available. <laughs> yeah. um, so he was not allowed to be in contact with his family. So all the letters that Barinanu sent, Chote Nanu never got. And therefore, he's harbored a four-year-old resentment against his brother, against his family. So uh, even though they're biologically connected, there is a lot of anger, resentment, grief between them. Just as they see each other in the prologue, there's going to be a fight that ensues in the, in the next several pages that I didn't read. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's a fraught relationship. Yeah. And I don't think we've mentioned yet, are the two men Hindu or Muslim? What, we're headed toward partition. So what, what is that going to mean for them? Yeah, good question. So they are raised Hindu, but they have lived syncretic lives. And syncretism is one of the the pillars of Indian society that I have hoped to uphold or celebrate in the novel and syncretism basically means everyone living peacefully, mm. to, uh, tolerance, but also that even though you're Hindu, you might also celebrate Eid, you might celebrate Christmas, you might celebrate all these other uh, religious festivals because you live in harmony with them. Mm, right. How deeply rooted was Indian nationalism at that point? Would people like these two identify as Indian, or was that something that still was kind of being formed? That's a good question, and I think that idea is in constant flux. I think I read something on Instagram this morning that people are still debating whether to call the country India or a more sort of Indic name, Bharat. So that idea is constantly in flux. But then in the 40s, as your question, again, it's not a monolith, right? Like there are leaders who have, who are championing this idea and they're sort of writing about it and carving it out of ancient art, modern, contemporary art. They're telling you Mother India is this woman who is Hindu who's wearing a sari. And, you know, the map of India looks like a woman wearing a sari, which is, by the way, a line from a Jhumpalahiri story. Mm-hmm. All of these ideas, they're there, but they're there for those who listen. Uh, Chode Nanu might have listened, but Bare Nanu, who is more pragmatic, he's got the, the family business to worry about, so he's not going to tap into those ideas as much, and he wouldn't be as nationalistic as, say, Chode Nanu might be. Mm. Right. Okay, so jumping ahead a little bit, what is it that the next generations, how do they differ? How has the passage of time changed the group of people who are, when we get to the 2002 plot line, and what are they hoping to learn about history? 
Thank you. Yeah, another good question. That would be sort of my generation or one before that. But what I tried to capture in this novel is not just the partition violence, but the long shadow of it and how the traumas have been passed down and inherited within families. Mm. So the siblings in the 2002 plotline, Ela and Karan, sister and brother, they appear sort of clueless because, and it's not their fault, because they have not been taught about partition at school. Mm. Right. Their grandparents have not been very vocal about it. So they've had to do the work of digging, researching, piecing together uh, what was told, kind of like what I've done in this to write this novel. That was the official silence that was uh, shrouded over partition because it came at the time when independence came. So they both came together and partition was basically the ugly twin that was hidden behind the, the prettier twin of independence. Mm. Right. So when you inherit that and then you inherit the silent wounds, how do you turn out? Like how does, for example, losing your grandmother to partition, how does that, what kind of a mother does that make your mother if she doesn't grow up with a mother, right? And how is your childhood going to be affected by a mother who doesn't know how to mother, for example? Mm. Yeah, that's what they're dealing with in the more contemporary timeline. Yeah. And I don't know if we, I guess I don't want to ask any more about what they discover because I feel like that might spoil things. We'd be getting toward the end of the book. But I am curious if you feel a personal connection to this period of history. Has it, it, do you feel like this era of partition has shaped you as a person or as a writer in some way? Absolutely, yeah. So I was born in the same house where my mother and all my aunts and uncles were born. And this isn't some, you know, like grand haveli or bungalow, you know, a big old house. It's basically refugee housing that my Mm. grandfather got right after he moved from Lahore to India. Mm. I was writing about this house. I realized I needed to go back to Lahore and to talk about Lahore because even though my grandfather might never have mentioned Lahore to me just because it wasn't said it was present, you know, it yeah. was present in the way that he related his adopted city. Right. Um, that he might have brought and that were all failed, you know, the Urdu poetry books that he left behind and was never able to read again, for example. So in the lack and the loss of things is where I located my own upbringing. Why wasn't I given a robust literary tradition? Why did I find out about it 20 years later in the U.S. instead of right there in India because of all these cleavages, because of all these official, you know, removing Urdu from the linguistic diversity of India and forcing Hindi down people's throats. So, yeah, so that kind of linguistic partition I experienced as well. And people my generation and generation that will come after will keep on experiencing because it's an active partition is an active event it's still happening because we know that we were one we were together once and then we have to repeatedly remind ourselves and do things like debate what to call India you know Mm. and very sort of Hindu Indic name so that the Muslim side is cleaved off the diverse side is cleaved off 
So yeah, so we're still performing partition as of today. And obviously, you know, that affects us. As time passes and as you're looking at generations, I mean, we, we often think about the younger generations looking at the older generations and trying to figure things out and make sense of it. But there's also the older generations looking at the younger generations and mm-hmm. seeing this is how things are going to go. You know, they see the the history slip away or the memories are going to start to fade and and mm-hmm. you know that that the longer time passes the more people will forget what things were like you know before and uh do you do you feel that pull as well do your do your characters uh from the generation of uh Chote and and Bare are they also looking at the grandchildren and kind of saying um you know here's here's something here's what i like about what's happening to them and here's what i don't like yeah, exactly. Another very interesting question. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, so what do we owe our grandparents, if anything, right? Yeah. I spent a lot of time, I spent the last 15 years figuring that out. And for, you know, personal, emotional reasons, I decided that the first novel that I wrote was going to be about my grandfather because I felt I owed him this narrative of piecing together. It's fictionalized. It's not, you know, it's not completely his life but you know I owed partitioned families the story because we don't speak of it and because we don't speak of it we pretend that it never happened and because of that we spend a lot of time walking around this sort of invisible elephant so now we can walk around something concrete you know yeah yeah the stories are out there and in terms of you know different ways of living so in the novel for example Chote Nanu isn't simply caught in his own reminiscences of Lahore. He is, you know, he's very much present in the contemporary time and he turned their family home into a rest house for Hindu pilgrims, for example. So that he is moving with the times and thinking that, you know, this is what the new India should look like. But then again, we know that he's operating from resentments and hurt and that's not who he really is. So I think that's when productive conversations can happen when different generations come together and we talk about our wounds and see what exactly needs to be done to make amends. But we do need to take the first step. We do need to say, let's talk about it instead of just ignoring it. Right, right. Has Salman Rushdie read your book? Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think he'd make of it? I don't I think there's a lot of hierarchy in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he would find he would see it as well? This is the natural inheritor of a tradition started by Midnight's Children, or do you think he'd say, "Oh, the the new generation is taking things in a completely different uh, direction, and you know, sort of looking at the same events I did, but from a different angle"? Yeah, I think he would say the latter. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, and. Even as early as uh, Amit Chaudhary, uh, another Indian writer, he as well has, you know, sort of parted ways from Rushdie's style. And I mean, there are writers that Rushdie com- like sort of saw that his own influence on, for example, Arundhati Roy. Uh, but since then, you know, Indian writing in English has flourished and blossomed into something not at all like Midnight's Children, even though I think we should definitely acknowledge the hefty work that that Rushdie did in that novel, both you know in terms of writing it and 
the impact that it's had on the on the literary world. But I think this he would say, you know, this is this is good. This is it's good that we're branching out and and utilizing separate styles, maybe more American styles. Mm. Well, uh, if you run out of ideas for future novels, maybe that would be uh, an interesting novel is to have a, a grandfatherly figure of a writer and then a writer who comes along later and is taking up some of the same topics, but uh, the two of them have to figure out one another. That would be a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> and in the meantime, we will continue to enjoy this book. It's called House of Caravans. It's recommended for anyone who enjoys the sweep of history and seeing family generations and is interested in, in learning more about this particular world that's set here. Shilpi Suneja, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It was such a pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickensett for thinking about those martyrs in her cosmic way. And my thanks to Shilpi Suneja for a delightful conversation. We'll be back soon with some Octobery goodness, including Virginia Woolf's story about a haunted house and some more Shakespeare, of course. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.